Good morning. Welcome home, Father Tripp and Corey. Father Corey, great to have you all back. Um, they've been in Honduras for like a week and came back late last night, so make sure you um, find them after the service and um, find out about their trip. Um, we are continuing this morning in Mark's gospel, will be in chapter 7. But before we get to that, I want us to remember what happened way back in chapter 2. You will recall in chapter 2, we have um, the first healing, the first miracle of Jesus recorded in Mark's gospel. Um, this paralytic man's friends have gathered him up, you remember, right? And they brought him up on the roof. Now, if you were paralyzed and being put on a roof, I'm not sure what you would think about that. Um, but you apparently didn't have a choice. Brought up to the roof, they cut a hole in the roof, and here they lower this man down into a crowded house, right at Jesus' feet and surrounded by Pharisees. Paralyzed man is lying there on the ground. Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. Now, no doubt this man was exceedingly pleased to hear this, and yet he was still stuck there on the ground at Jesus' feet in a room full of Pharisees. And these Pharisees are amazed, indignant even. They, they see what Jesus has done, and they say, God alone, right? God alone has the power to forgive sins. Who is this man, this blasphemer? Forgiving this man's sins. And Jesus' response is classic. He says to the Pharisees, well, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, say to him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... And here Jesus looks at this man lying at his feet, and he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man rose immediately and walked right past the Pharisees out of that room and went home. Amazing story. But why? Why did Jesus heal this man? Well, it's so interesting. It's not to heal him for the sake of healing. He says, I've, I'm going to heal you that you may know, speaking to the Pharisees, that you may know the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. Yes, the purpose of the healing points to the power of Jesus, but more importantly, it reveals to us something about who Jesus is, that we may know that this Jesus forgives sins. That this Jesus brings the kingdom near to us. That this Jesus does what God alone has the power to do. I invite you this morning to open up your scriptures with me. We're going to fast forward a few chapters now to Mark chapter 7 and look at another healing. We want to keep this in mind. Why is Jesus healing this man? Mark chapter 7, we're going to begin at verse 31. We have Jesus' healing of a deaf man. Now, while you find it, let us remind ourselves where we are. Jesus is returning from a mostly Gentile territory. Um, he's been out in the region of Tyre and Sidon on the Mediterranean coast. And, and there's a few Jewish people there, but it's mostly non-Jews, what, what the Bible calls Gentiles. 
And he's actually just driven out a demon from a Gentile woman's child. Actually, after much theological debate, they have a a back and forth about who Jesus is. And once he sees the faithfulness of this woman, he, he heals her child remotely, I might add. He doesn't even go see the child. He just heals her. And now he's returning to Galilee. The scriptures say right there in verse 31, he returned from the region of Tyre um, and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. Now, some of you are really smart and you're thinking Decapolis. We've heard of that before in this sermon series. What happened in Decapolis? Well, weeks ago we read about the man who had a demon named Legion, right? And he lived among the tombs. And Jesus healed him and he sent this legion of demons into a herd of pigs and the pigs ran off the cliff. And the owner of the pigs, or the herdsman of the pigs, looked at his pigs and saw that they were destroyed. And he ran into the town, Decapolis, and he told everyone. They weren't real happy about this. And they asked Jesus to leave. They didn't know what sort of sorcery Jesus was engaging in, but they did know they didn't want it in his town, in their town. But now he's back. And they seem, apparently, this time to be more welcoming because when he returns, they bring this man to him. He's deaf and he's mute, and they they clearly are are, are seeking healing for this man. And from that point, we have a pretty simple story, right? Jesus takes him aside. He heals them in a unique way, different than he does it with other people. He he, he touches his ears. He touches his tongue. He sighs in in um, in a show of of, of sympathy, of empathy with this man, and he understands what he's going through, and he cries out, and he says, be healed. And immediately, the man could hear. His tongue was untied. And Jesus asked the crowds, please don't tell anyone about this. And of course, they go and tell everyone. They can't stay silent. They tell everyone about what they've seen. On the surface, it's a simple story. In fact, this miracle might seem pretty ho-hum. If we've been, you've been reading along for the last seven chapters, you've seen Jesus do lots of things, it should not surprise you that he can do this. But underneath that surface, this healing is full of profound and symbolic meaning. And I think the townspeople were beginning to understand that, which is why they could not be constrained in their proclamation. So let's look at this passage. And the first thing we want to see is this physical miracle is a spiritual bombshell that Jesus is dropping right here next to the Sea of Galilee. So verse 32, they brought a man to him who was deaf and had a speech impediment. He was mute. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears And after spitting, he touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed. And he said to him, Ephaphtha, Ephaphtha, that's a hard word, be opened. And the man's ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. This is a man who has a, he's deaf and he has a speech impediment. Now the Greek word here for speech impediment, or or this man being mute, is monglilios, mute, monglilios. This, this word is rarely used, but it's used somewhere else pretty important. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you know how we have English Bibles because we don't know Greek and Hebrew? 
Well, Mark had a Greek Bible, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And he would have read his Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, and he would have read Isaiah 35, verse 6, and there he would have seen that God has promised that the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. The tongue of the monglilios will sing for joy. Let's look at the full context here in Isaiah 35, verses 4 to 6. The Lord says to Isaiah, he says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap for joy, leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This is a passage about Israel's Messiah. Israel is known throughout the book of Isaiah, even though they're God's people, their their ears are closed and their tongues are tied and their eyes are blind. They cannot see the work of God. They cannot proclaim Him to the nations. And this is a promise that when God saves them, when He restores them, their eyes will be opened, their ears will be unclogged, and their tongues will sing for joy. And now we have in Mark's gospel... Jesus enacting physically this spiritual promise that God has made to his people. Is he not doing exactly what Isaiah said? Is he not taking this scared, fearful spectacle of a man aside and meeting him gracefully, healing him tenderly? Is this not exactly what Isaiah is forecasting all those many years ago? This is a physical reenactment of a spiritual promise. Jesus, through his actions, is identifying himself with the Messiah of Isaiah's prophecy. He is saying, I am the one who can open eyes. I am the one who can open your ears. I am the one who can untie your tongue. I am the one who will bring restoration to God's people. Now, Isaiah sees this prophecy fulfilled in a way that no one expected, not even the folks who were reading the the Hebrew Scriptures. They did not quite understand what was happening. But if you read Isaiah and you you see the narrative of Isaiah, this promise in in chapter 35 is fulfilled ultimately in the servant of Isaiah 53. The way God restores his people is through the death of the servant on their behalf. Now, we see Jesus, and we see this clearly, that he died for our salvation, that he was raised from the dead, that we might have eternal life with God, that we might be in right relationship with God. Jesus is foreshadowing here in this miracle what he's going to do for God's people, that through his death and resurrection, he will open our eyes, open our ears, and unbind our tongues that we might know and sing of the glory of the Lord. This is a physical miracle, but it is a spiritual bombshell that he is dropping here by the Sea of Galilee. Second thing to observe is simply this. This 
miracle leads to a remarkable testimony from the man and from the people of Decapolis. Their encounter with Jesus has led them to a zealous proclamation. Look at verses 36 to 37. Jesus charged them to tell no one. Well, now, why would he do this? Um, When you read Mark's gospel, there's a a turning point coming up here in a few chapters where the disciples finally get who Jesus is. And they say, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus begins to teach them about what that means because it's not what they think it means. They think it means a political ruler, a military leader, someone to overthrow Rome And Jesus is not ready, he doesn't want people expecting that of him because it's not what he's come to do. And so he doesn't want them to tell anyone, don't tell anybody. It's like telling me, don't touch the red button. Well, I hadn't thought about it, but okay. They tell everyone. And he knew that, he knew that, and he knew what was going to come with that. They tell everyone because of what they've seen, right? Verse 37, they were astonished. Well, verse 36, the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Their encounter with Jesus cannot be contained. They look at him and they say, this man has done all things well. He healed our friend from his demons. He's restored the hearing and the the speech of this this deaf and, and mute man. He does all things well. And he does all things well for us. They proclaim this encounter with Jesus because it cannot be contained. It it overflows within them. They can't help but tell everybody what they've seen and what they've heard. So I want us to consider two things perhaps that we might take with us from this passage. Um, And the first one is this. It, It is in many ways an invitation to a zealous proclamation of the gospel. If we have met Jesus in the way that this man and these people met Jesus, we can't help but make his gospel known. We can't help but proclaim it with our lips and with our lives into this world. It's an invitation to consider what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection and what he has done in your life and make that known to the world. You don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to say what Jesus has done for you. To say what you used to be like, how Jesus met you and how you are now. That's a story we all have. It's a story that we cannot contain when we know the love of Christ. It's an invitation to a zealous proclamation of the gospel. But first, before it's that... First, it is an invitation to know the compassion and grace of Jesus. Now, it might mean to know this for the very first time, to encounter him in a powerful way, but, but, but for most of us, I'm guessing it's an invitation to know it again and again, tomorrow and next week and next month and next year and next decade, to know over and over and over the grace of Jesus in your life. Because if you're anything like me, it's a nice reminder and you too quickly get off track. If you're anything like me, you come here 
and you bring your shame and your guilt. Maybe you're not deaf and mute, but certainly you are full of shame, many of you. You're ashamed of what you've done or who maybe you've become. You're guilty. You feel that guilt. It weighs on you. It's burden. It's heavy. You have things that you know you're doing that you just can't share. Thoughts that you're thinking that, 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 that you, surely you wouldn't have a single friend if everybody knew what was going on inside your head. And you've come here this morning. Maybe you're approaching Jesus in fear. Many of you may be approaching him in the midst of depression or hopelessness. And you need to know the compassion and the grace of our Lord Jesus. Maybe your life is on edge. Maybe you feel like you're barely holding it together. But here we have Jesus in this passage, and he's saying, I understand. I get that. He, he called this man aside, and he spoke to him tenderly. He identified with him. He, he knows the suffering the man is going through, and so much more. Anything you're going through right now, any suffering, any, any illness, any fears you have, Jesus knows what that's like and so much more. And he's whispering words of compassion and grace into your, hear, into your ear. I hear you. I'm with you. I love you. I forgive you. I welcome you. He identifies. He meets you where you are. And he brings grace and compassion. And the thing about Jesus, he's not like one of your really best compassionate friends, right? People who get you and they'll sit with you and we need these people. But they have no power except to love you. And the power of the Holy Spirit to, to, to love you. And that's an amazing power, just to, to be clear about that. But they're not God. But this Jesus, he's the one who forgives sins. He's the one who restores, who welcomes you into his kingdom and he invites you to look back at the things he's done and the promises he's made. And he invites you to look ahead at the world that is to come. Where your guilt will be forgiven, your shame will be erased, your suffering will be no more, your aching bodies will be restored, your sight will be given, your ears will be unclogged, and your tongue will sing the praise and glory and mercy of Jesus unhindered. And he's inviting you to walk and step into that today. Today, I'll close you with a quote from a man you've heard me speak of many times, J.C. Ryle, a 19th century Ang uh, Anglican bishop. He says this, he wants us to remember that this is the Lord who has done all things well, all things well. Let us remember it as we look forward to the days to come. We know not what they may be. Bright or dark, many or few. But we know that we are in the hands of him who does all things well. He will not err in his dealings with us. He will take away and give. He will afflict and bereave. He will move and he will settle with perfect wisdom at the right time and in the right way. The great shepherd of the sheep makes no mistakes, and he leads every lamb of his flock by the right way to the city of habitation. Let us pray.